All right, well, if you know uh, where we've been, we've been in this series. Um, we're calling it The Written Word, and it's a series just on Scripture itself, focusing on really what the Bible claims for itself, right? And so why are we taking a break and, and do, doing this topic, for those of you who've been here? Come on in. We're just getting started. No, no worries. And if you need to pass through, come on through. So we're in the series, Written Word. Why are we, why are we, why are we uh, pausing and, and, and taking a look at this over the break? Why is it so important? Wow. Do I need to warm you up a little bit before I ask you a question? What? Okay, thank you, Jojo. You bailed us out. So thank Jojo. Uh, everything rises or falls on what we believe about Scripture. Really, there's, this is like a, a crucial topic. Everything in your life depends on what you do with this book. Okay, that's why we're doing the series. Because um, I want to instill these convictions in you. We remember that we were created, the, the whole purpose, the way we're supposed to function, the way that we were created in the beginning was to obey God's words. You're to listen to them, trust them, obey them, and that's how we're going to flourish as humans. And uh, we have not, we, we didn't do that in the garden, and we were deceived away from God's words. And now, even today, many persist in that deception, like we just heard in, from Romans 7, sin deceived me, Paul says. Many persist in that deception. They, they neglect God's words, and they enter into almost every second into a Christless eternity because they've spurned God's words. But as believers, we've had our eyes and ears open to the truth and to Scripture. But at times, even we can fall back into that same deception. We've seen that again and again in our hearts. Our hearts are still prone to those things. Even though we have a new heart and it's being renewed by the Spirit of Christ, we can still fall back into those deceptions around God's Word. Because Satan's still prowling around, he's still trying to deceive us, Paul says, like he deceived Eve in the garden. Uh, so he draws, that, he draws that parallel for us. And so we need these deep convictions about this book if we're going to walk by faith in, in the written word of God. And when these convictions start setting in, we noticed, Pastor Farrell made reference to this passage as well, that we'll start responding, we'll, we'll notice our lives will have, have some of the the fruits of the, of the man in Psalm 119. Remember Psalm 119? A man loves the scriptures. He loves the written word of God. He depends on the word. He has deep convictions about this book. And some of those convictions start spilling out. He's weeping over people who don't know it, um, who, who don't heed it. His heart burns with indignation against people who spurn God's words. They mock it. Uh, his, he's full of, full of joy. He's glad for affliction because affliction teaches him to stay true to God's words. There's just, you'll see, if you want to get an x-ray of a heart that has deep convictions about the Bible, about the written word of God, Psalm 119. And I, I told you that would be a good, good, uh, good thing for you to do. I'm going to run the risk of asking, who read Psalm 119 over Thanksgiving break? Oh, a few of you did. Okay, okay. That's, that's better. I had, my, I had low expectations. Okay? Because you have your, not because you're bad, Okay? Because you probably have other Bible reading plans and things you're working on, all right? Um, there were just some of you who were super ambitious. So we'll polish that, that little halo a little bit for you. Good job. All right. Back to my notes. Okay. So we've been looking at the series. We're calling it The Written Word. And we're looking at, specifically, we're dialing in on the things that the Bible claims for itself, right? This is no ordinary book. The book itself claims things about itself. And so we can't just fall into the trap of like, yeah, the Bible's a good book among many. No, the Bible's in a class by itself. That's how it views itself. It views itself in a class by itself, we could say. So what are some of those things? Where did we start? What was the first thing the Bible, that we looked at that the Bible claims for itself? The Bible is inspired. That's right. Inspiration. What does that mean? Okay, God breathed. It's from God. So it means it's sourced in God. God's the one who created or breathed out these written words of Scripture. Where would you go for that? 2 Timothy 3.16. Jojo's like, Jojo's outpacing all you guys, okay? So we've got to keep up with Jojo here. That's a joke. You can laugh. Okay, all right. 2 Timothy 3.16, that's right. 2 Peter 1 is another, another great text on, on inspiration. 
We looked at that in depth, won't go over that in detail, but we got to know that this book claims that it comes from God. Okay, that's a radical claim today. That's radical, that we have words from God, the one true and living God. All right, what else? We have, and that's foundational. We have to know that this book comes from God, that it's God-breathed, both Old and New Testaments. We looked at that. What else do we need to know about this book? What was the second thing we looked at? Inerrancy, right. That this book claims inerrancy. So what, what do we mean by that? What does inerrant mean? Okay, without error, that's good. It's in the negative. In the positive. It's fully true. Yeah, it's always true. That's, a, that's a probably a, a better way to say it. It's fully true and therefore trustworthy. You can stake everything on the, claim, on the claims of Scripture. The Bible makes good on all its claims. It is inerrant, meaning it's not going to lead you astray. It doesn't have error. Now, we nuance that a little bit, right? How do we nuance that? What's the Bible not claiming? What's that? Yeah, like a, like a technical scientific precision without respect to the context, right? We looked at like that, that we're, when we're pressing the Bible to have some sort of scientific precision in every, like, irrespective of the context, that's not what the Bible claims for itself, nor should it. We looked at the example, context matters when we're talking about precision, right? So if somebody said, how old are you? You're not going to say, I'm 20 years old, you know, four months, uh, three weeks, and five days, and 36 minutes, and, you know, and go down to the, go down to the second. That would be a precise answer. Um, probably none of you know, right? So some of you, how many, okay, fess up. How many of you tried to figure that out? Good. Okay, you're not weird. All right. Oh, 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 oh. I'm, I'm paying attention now, okay? This is, this is I'm like a live wire. You've got to watch out when you raise your hand. Okay, so, precision, according to the context, right? Somebody asks you your age, you give them a round number. Why? Because that's, what, that's, yeah, that's what's expected in the context. You're not looking at it. But if you're, in a, if you're in a chemistry lab, round number is an error. Yes, a round number, you need, you need precision, right? In, in chemistry and the sciences and those things. So the context matters. The point we were looking at in Scripture is the Scripture speaks in ordinary language, everyday language, uses hyperbole, uses just ordinary speech from our vantage point as humans. Okay, So to press it to have this scientific precision is not what the Scriptures are, are doing in terms of like to the nth degree, right? Okay, we caveated it with that. I know I just kind of ran a rough shot over that. We was a lot more careful in the, in the time when we taught it. So you can go back and listen to that if you missed it. And then what else, do we, what else should we caveat, kind of qualify this claim to inerrancy? What is inerrant? The original manuscripts, right? The original manuscripts, meaning the moment that John the Apostle finished the book of Revelation, that, that text is fully inerrant, meaning it has no errors. It's exactly as God intended it. But we looked and we saw that over time, there's been thousands and thousands and thousands of copies and families of copies of these texts and just like if uh, you know, you're copying, you're, in a, you're working in an office, and you've got a copy machine, and it's, it's making copies, and there, a little hair falls into the copier machine, and then you've got the hair coming out in the copies, right? That's, that's how it worked. But we saw that there, there have been incredible, incredible scholarly work on getting the original text of Scripture in a very, very reliable format for us. So we don't really have anything to fear when it comes to those variants um, in the original manuscripts. We have, a, we have a reliable word, okay? So those were some of the, the things we looked at, and we saw that this, this inerrancy really, this is why it's so important, is it, it, it upends this sort of relativism that just permeates our culture, this truth, truth, you know, you get your truth, my truth, and when, the, when, we, when we claim, when the Bible claims for itself that it is inerrant or that it is completely truthful, it means it is the only is the only source of truth. So it can't be we can't both have competing claims and they both be true. Okay, either the Bible is true or it's not. Right? That's that's what the scriptures claim. It claims that it is completely true. That the scriptures we saw we saw that this defines reality for us. It defines the way things truly are, and it is completely trustworthy. All right, that was inerrancy. 
And so today, we're going to segue to uh, another, another uh, attribute of Scripture, another thing that Scriptures claim for itself. And it claims, the Scriptures claim that it is authoritative. The Scriptures are authoritative. What do we mean by that? Well, you can think of it this way. When something has authority, authority, it, you can think of it as the ability or the capacity to create an obligation in someone else, or in the hearer, in this case. Authority means it has the ability or the capacity to create an obligation. So you think, well, what does that mean? Okay. If you think about it just for a second, if your boss has authority over you at work, what does that mean? They have the ability to create an obligation in your life, don't they? They define your job description. Uh, they tell you what to do. You have to do it if you want to stay employed there. Their words create obligations. If you're a child and you live at home, your parents have authority, right? Which means they have the ability to create an obligation. Their words create obligations for the children because they are the authority. And so when we say that the scriptures are the authority or, or, or they, they are authoritative, the Bible is God's words to us, is his, his revelation to us. It creates obligation for us as the hearers. Right? It's, it's what we must do, in other words. It's not optional. So when God issues a command, his creatures are obligated to obey it because of his authority. When he gives a promise, his creatures, us, every human, as we'll see, the wind and the waves, everything in creation is obligated to obey and to, to trust the promise. When he warns us, we're obligated to heed the warning. And this is super important, just like the other ones. There's a lot of overlap here in what we were talking about in the last few weeks. But every human being has an ultimate authority. They have something they go back to to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand here. This is, this, is, this is the authority. And guess what every sinful human's authority is? Themselves, right? Themselves, ultimately. Now, there might be a hodgepodge of my parents and my upbringing and my experiences and da-da-da-da-da, all the things. Maybe this, if you grew up in a different religion, this text or that thing, you know. But you bring all that to bear, you mix it all up, and you say, I'm the authority. I'm the judge. Like, I'm the one who, who determines these things, and I kind of have to answer to me. And that is the air we breathe in our culture, is that don't let anybody tell you what to do. Like, it is an anti-authority culture. So this is crucial that we, that we nail this down. The scriptures, because they're God's words to us, carry inherent authority. And we'll see an ultimate authority. So let's look at this, really. Let's look at some of these statements. We'll look at four statements about Scripture and Scripture's authority. Number one, it is rooted, Scripture's authority is rooted in God's inherent authority. Okay, that's just a fancy way of saying that God has authority, and so when he speaks, his words carry authority. Scripture's authority, this written text that we have, is rooted in the fact that God has spoken them, inspiration, that they're truthful, inerrancy, and that they, they're God's words, so they carry his inherent authority. It's rooted in God's own authority. This is pretty clear, so we'll, we'll, work, through this, we'll work through this quickly, but I want to throw some, throw some text here. God's authority, we've seen, is that, that it's absolute, okay? Meaning there's no one higher than God. The scriptures claim this again and again and again and again. Cover to cover. No one has more authority. No one is in a higher position than God himself. His authority is absolute. And I, I threw a few texts on here for you. Um, let me give you just a handful of these uh, statements in Scripture that attest to God's supremacy over everything. You can go to Genesis 14 here. In this text, King Melchizedek is, is speaking, and he knew that God had all authority. And so when he met Abraham, Abraham was coming out, he met Abraham, and he blessed him by the one true God. And listen how he describes this 
this God. He says, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Now, if you just break that down, God most high. What does that mean? Well, there's no one higher. (laughs) There's no God higher than him, right? He is the most high. And he goes on to describe him as the possessor of heaven and earth. This is how the ESV translates that. Literally the owner of all there is. Like it all belongs to him. Why? Because he made it all. He's the possessor. He's the owner. He's the one to whom it belongs. Psalm 97, the Psalms are full of this. Psalm 97.9, he is exalted above all gods. There's questions that, that, that permeate Scripture. Who is like you? Answer, no one. And the Scriptures actually say that. There is none like you. There's nothing or no one like him, and no God, no angelic being, no human can rival his authority. Just ask Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? Exodus, who is Yahweh that I should fear? That I should obey? He learned. Painfully. So what's the point? There's no higher authority than the one to whom everything owes its existence. Now, I want you to think about this one. This is kind of a a backdoor way to get to this idea that God has inherent authority or absolute authority. When God makes an oath, the author of Hebrews says, makes an oath, Typically, when people make oaths, they swear by some outside authority. They kind of kind of appeal. Okay, make this oath based on this, you know, this thing outside of me that's, that's true and, and fixed. When God does that, he, can't, he doesn't have anything higher to swear by or to, <laughs> to give an oath by. So he swears by himself. Look at this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you in He doesn't appeal to anything other than himself. So somebody last week asked about kind of the circularity of the argument that when Scripture claims these things, and we just go back to Scripture to prove it, it's circular. And I said, yes, because that's the nature of a supreme authority. Like, you don't have anywhere to go other than like that, right? It's, the big word for that is self-authenticating. And we all do it. There's all, everybody has this sort of circularity. Everybody goes back to an authority that they can't prove and they have to take by faith. So, when God makes a promise, he has to appeal to himself because he doesn't have anything higher to appeal to. And all of this authority became manifest in Jesus. Oh, is it working now? Yeah, look at that. has a mind of its own. I don't have all authority. Okay? Can't control this little guy. Um, God's authority is absolute, and it has been given to Jesus. We see this again and again in the Gospels. Jesus teaches with authority. We saw that a couple weeks ago. His miracles prove that he had authority to forgive sins on earth. It made all the religious establishment super mad because they were like, who does he is? You know, forgive sins. And he's like, well, let me show you that I have the authority to actually do that. Rise and walk. And the sickness left and the man man walked. We could go on and on. But the most climactic statement of this authority that was kind of bestowed upon him, we might say, as a reward for his obedience, the, the most climactic statement is in Matthew 28 here. Very familiar text to us. I just want to point it out. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given, should say given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. As the ascended king, obedient to the point of death, he was resurrected now, and he was about to be enthroned, and given that Daniel 7, all authority. And it follows then that since the Bible is inspired by God, like we've seen, it's the expression of his authority, right? It's not a, it's not a hard jump to make. Since it's, the Bible's inspired by God, 
It's the expression of his authority and his ultimate authority. All right, so that's our first statement, pretty self-evident. Scripture's authority is actually rooted in God's inherent authority. It's, it's authoritative because it comes from God, and God has all authority. All right, so let's, let's spread this out a little bit more in talking about this authority. What kind of authority is it? Okay, second statement. It is an ultimate authority. We've hinted around at that, talked about that, but it's, this is important to kind of camp out on for a minute. We've said there's nothing higher for God to appeal to because that's he, he's the ultimate authority. And it means then that, that God's words, like we said in the beginning, are able to create obligations in his hearers because he is the one that, that is in charge. When God speaks to his, his creatures are obligated to respond appropriately because of this authority. And all creation does this. Everything in creation sort of recognizes this authority. Even inanimate things, we would classify as inanimate. Let's, let's take a little survey here of, of some of these things. Stormy waves heed the authority of our Savior. Matthew 8, 26, the wind and the waves obey him. It says, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, that's Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then, here it is, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, that's evocative of several texts in the Old Testament. Because Yahweh is the one who stills the sea. Yahweh is the one who walks on the sea. Lots of things like that. But this, in this, in this case, is, a, is an allusion back to what Yahweh does. And the men, 27, his disciples marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey? It's an absolute authority. Wind and waves. Listen to the king. All right, some other examples. There's authority over great fish. Great fish. You know where I'm going here. Jonah, chapter 1. I love, I love this. Jonah's great. The book of Jonah is great. We're going to go. We're going to stay in Jonah for a few minutes here. Jonah 1.17-2.10 says, And the Lord appointed, so you see that, the Lord appointed a great fish, to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. <laughs> Listen to this. And then down in chapter 2, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Hey, go, go spit him out now. I love it. So he spoke to him, and he went and did it. The fish obeyed. Unlike Jonah, by the way. All right, let's keep going. Stay in Jonah. His authority is over the plants, the worms, and the winds. In Jonah, there's a point here that the author, probably Jonah himself, is trying to make. Look at this. Jonah 4. This is after Jonah's been rebellious, and he finally obeys, but he's still sulking about it the fact that the Lord showed mercy on the Ninevites because he, he wanted the Lord to judge the Ninevites. thought he knew better than the Lord. Didn't realize the, the depths of his own need for mercy. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. <laughs> so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He was not glad that Nineveh received mercy. But he's exceedingly glad that he's being shaded, you know, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it, so that it withered. So he's talking to, this, he's talking to the, the fish and the sea. He's talking to the tiniest little worms. You know, hey, go eat that plant. Teach my servant a lesson. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Again, the Lord's teaching the lesson here about Nineveh. 
But the point I'm trying to make, I'm just extracting this out to show you God's authority is not limited, right? It's an ultimate authority. It, it's over all creation. And that's kind of the point of, of Jonah. All right, over plants, worms, and winds. Over rebellious angels. Okay, so what about the people who, or beings, who don't heed his authority? That appear to some, have some kind of agency, like angels at one point and humans today. Well, there's rebellious angels, and he still has authority over them. Jude 6 makes that very clear. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Meaning he dealt with that. He's chained them. And now, they're awaiting a final judgment. Okay? What about others? What about, what about us as believers? It's authority over us. Yes, he has authority over us as well. Romans 14, 11. Writes, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, quoting Isaiah, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So, inference for Christians, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So, there will be a day, even for believers, where we will have to give that account to God. We've talked about that you know, whenever we were, we were looking in, in um, doing our exposition of First Peter about this judgment seat where we give an account of how we lived our lives as believers to God, who's our Father, yes, but He's also still our judge and is going to still evaluate our obedience and reward us on that basis. Every knee shall bow to me, He says. It's an ultimate authority even over believers. His authority is over Satan. Over Satan, God makes it very clear that even though Satan's roaming about doing his worst on earth, that he's on a leash, that he's doing God's bidding in a mysterious way. Satan is not thwarting God's plans. He's advancing God's plans. And in the end, Satan will be judged for all of his rebellion. Revelation 20.10 will be held accountable to the authority of the Most High God. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So his authority is over Satan and ultimately over every rebellious human. So those who were deceived by Satan persist in their deception, persist in their rebellion against the one true and living God. They might look like they're flourishing now, but in the end, God will judge them and will execute his ultimate authority over them. Revelation 20.12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. No human will escape the authority of God and they will be held accountable for what they did with this book. Each one of them, great and small. Will be held accountable. So his authority is an ultimate authority. And this explains to us why when we're preaching the gospel or when we see people preaching the gospel in the New Testament, the gospel of the kingdom, that they don't invite people to believe and repent. What do they do? They command them to believe and repent. It is a command from on high. It's glorious news, it's good news, but it is, a, it is authoritative news. Every knee will bow one day and the whole world will recognize this authority. So the word of God carries ultimate authority and as a result it obligates its hearers to obey. 
And like we said, one day every creature is going to recognize this authority and they will be held accountable for how they responded to this word. So what are some implications out of this? Just kind of jot these down. We can think about these together. But one obvious implication is there's no authority that's higher than, than the Scripture. Right? And that's pretty self-evident at this point. So that means, then, like governments aren't higher than Scripture. So there technically aren't any closed countries. I mean, I know there, there presents logistical problems with that. But they don't have the authority to tell you, like, you can't preach God. Like, that's, that, that's God's authority. That's Christ's authority. Christ is the ruler, Revelation 1, the ruler of the kings of, earth, of the earth. <laughs> he's, he's an authority over them. Even Rome, you know, in that, in that context. He's the ruler. There's no, nothing higher. Pastors aren't ultimate, okay, in a church. Pastors are under the Bible, Right? That's why we do sequential exposition. That's why we're like teaching you verse by verse through books of the Bible, even though sometimes it feels like a grind. Why? Because we, want it, we, we believe this is authoritative, not what we think. Our job is one, we have one job. Get this to you. Right? Figure out what it says, get it to you, and submit to it ourselves. And model for you what this looks like. That's the that's job description of a pastor. So you go to a church, they're not teaching the Bible, get out of there. Okay? It's not good. All right, nothing higher. Pastors aren't ultimate. Parents aren't ultimate. Parents have a delegated authority. And it's sort of like parents are under the elders <laughs> and they're under the, the, the written word of God. So they're, they're working out what God has said. So that's, that's one implication. There's, there's no higher authority than the scripture itself because it represents God's very words. So our response needs to be, what have you said? Let me see if I can execute that in my realms of responsibility. Right? What else does this do, this doctrine of authority? Or the fact that it's an ultimate authority. Let's, let's put it that way. Well, I think if we're talking, thinking about, I mean, let me kind of come at it from another angle. It helps us battle the fear of man. How? What do you think? Helps us battle the fear of man. What's happening when we fear man? As it relates to authority. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're saying man most high. Right? Like God most high. That wasn't like caveman speech. Okay? That was, that was sort of, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like God most high, you're saying man's taking that place of God. So you're honoring man when God should be honored. So if you recognize, okay, God has authority and his scriptures have authority, then I need to be gracious and and kind and patient and opportunistic in how I think about getting that word across. But it's not like the the human that I'm tempted to fear has, has more authority than God, right? So I need to be bold to stand up to that, that authority if they're telling me something that's contrary to Scripture and love them enough, not fear them. Okay? I think it helps us battle the fear of man when we see the Scripture's authority. I know for me, just even thinking back through this, it, it strikes zeal in my heart to be obedient right, in the areas of my life. I've been renewed. God hasn't stuttered in what he wants me to do with my children. He's been very clear, actually, in, in my job or as a pastor. Or as a church member, the Lord, the Lord will hold us accountable for these things. His word is an option. It's not, it's not a suggestion. Matthew 28, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. It's progressive, for sure, because we're in process, but it's not, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not negotiable. Okay? And it makes me, here's another implication, it, this, this doctrine of authority, seeing how clear the scriptures are and how authoritative they are, it makes me even more thankful for God's mercy, right? His patience, his grace. Why? Why is that? Because I often don't heed his authority. And he's merciful to me. He's kind. He forgives that transgression. He doesn't just snuff me out, even though he could. Like nothing else, nothing else in creation defies the word of God. Except us and those fallen angels, right? 
Nothing else in creation defies his words like we do. And God is merciful. Merciful to us. Patient with us. Abundantly so. And so we should be thankful that he is and that he persists with us as a, as a good shepherd. Lots of other implications probably we could talk about. And if we want to talk about those, we can. But let's, let's keep going here. I've got a couple more statements that we need to make. Um, so, Scripture's authority. It's rooted in God's inherent authority. It's an ultimate authority. And then here's another one. Number three, it's a comprehensive authority. It's comprehensive. It means that, that what I'm getting at is, is the Bible's authority extends to all areas of human life. It applies to all our experiences. God cares about and has authority over how we think, what we feel, what we want, what we should do, how we should do it, what goals we have in trying to accomplish it. One author said, his authority presses into all the nooks and crannies of our lives. Every square inch of this, of this creation belong, is under his authority. It's comprehensive. So let's look at a few of these, of these statements. We'll, um, I can't remember what all I put on here, but I think there's a few sort of overarching statements about this sort of comprehensive authority. Let me give you a few of those real quick. Again, we've been alluding to this again and again, but Matthew 28, 20 here is the Great Commission to make disciples, and ultimately, verse 20, teaching them to observe all, hear the comprehensiveness, all, that I've commanded you. Right? So Christ has all authority. He wants his disciples to make more disciples, teaching them to observe and obey all that he's commanded. So it's a comprehensive authority that extends under, to, to all his commands. So that means that the goal of our lives is really framed up by Jesus as learning to obey. Right? <laughs> learning to heed his authority. To come under it. To do all that he's commanded. That's a general statement, Matthew 28, 20. Here's another one, a couple more. Colossians 3. Notice how comprehensive this is. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, right? Whether you're talking, whether you're acting, everything in between, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Meaning that whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever actions we take in our daily lives, all of it should be done in, quote, the name of Christ. That just means our entire lives should be carried out in the imitation of Christ. Like under the banner of his name. What he looks like. Under his good lordship. Comprehensive statement. And then to slaves, uh, down in chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, he says, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So, whatever you do, whatever menial tasks that your slavery to your master produces, because he has a, a, a delegated authority over you, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So, again, comprehensive. But Scripture doesn't just stay in the generalities, okay? It presses in and gives specific instruction. So it, it helps us see just how far-reaching Christ's authority is to be in our lives. So I'll give you some examples here. I don't think I actually listed them. These are all examples from Ephesians 4 and 5. Okay? I just want to give you, I just want you to feel this. So Ephesians 4 and 5, what all comes under the authority of Christ? He says our, our speech, the way we talk, we're to be truthful with each other, we're not to tear each other down, we're to build each other up. Our speech comes under his authority. Our relationships in the church comes under his authority. We're to love people, forgive people, not be embittered, da 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 da, da. We're to reconcile. Our relationships have to be governed by his authority. Our work is governed by his authority. We need to learn to work hard so we can, be, so we can share. Uh, our sexual ethics comes under his authority. All purity, chapter 5. 
our daily lives and our tasks come under his authority. Our time and how we spend it comes under his authority. Our pleasures and how we regulate them comes under his authority. Our corporate worship comes under his authority. Our marriages come under his authority. Our home life come under his authority. Our vocations and careers come under his authority. It is comprehensive. What's the point? Nothing's outside his lordship. It all comes under his authority. So, what? So, you're saying, wow, like that's, that's pretty intense. Yes. So, what does that mean for us if we believe this? It means we're going to be continually repenting from other things that govern our lives, like ourselves. Right? Our feelings, our pleasures, our fears. What motivates your life? What do you answer to? What, what, is, what, what do you wake up thinking about? Okay, I want, I, this is going to govern what I do today. Your free time. My day off. The Lord governs those things. And because we're not perfect, because we're not glorified yet, we will be one day, and we won't even have this battle. We'll submit to his authority. <laughs> Praise God. Um, but while we're not there yet, we're going to be battling this war that we want to be in charge. We want to have authority um, in and of ourselves. And so that means if we believe this, there's going to be a, a, a slow, continual repentance in our lives, aligning ourselves back to his authority. And it means that we'll be progressing slowly toward more obedience to Christ in those various areas of our lives. Right? So I, I've, I've encouraged you in other sermons to view your life sort of as like territory that the Lord is going to conquer, right? He's going to take dominion over in your life. And so it doesn't happen all at once. Be strategic about it. Start in the areas that, are, that, are, that you're most rebellious in, right? Like what, what, are the, what are the moments, areas of your life, responsibilities, or that you're just ignorant about? Like I have no idea what God says about how I should think about my career and work. Well, get busy, right? Like he's, he's written it so we can learn about these things. And we can, we can learn to implement them. All right? We're going to be progressing slowly toward more obedience to Christ in the various areas of our lives. And it also implies here, if we recognize his authority, that we won't live segmented and hypocritical lives, like, you know, kind of regulating our Christianity to Sunday. Like, I'm going to come to church, and then, woo, get out of there, and go do what I want to do. Like, live under my authority for the rest of this time. You know, I kind of checked my box over here. What is that doing? That's like... That's saying God has authority over from, from like 9 a.m. on Sunday to 12, you know, and then I have authority the rest of the time. That's not the way this works when we're talking about comprehensive authority. God has authority all the time, and we've got to, we've got to learn to submit to it. And if we believe this, then it'll help us with that sort of hypocritical, like I had to I was thinking about this for myself. I kind of view my week like that, and then, and then Fridays are the day I take off, and, and sometimes I fall into the trap of thinking, like, it's my, it's my day to kind of do what I want. And um, while we're going to see our last point here is very encouraging, but Christ is not a harsh taskmaster, so he, he wants to bless us with his authority, uh, which is the greatest news. So it doesn't mean that he's just pounding us into the ground all the time. We have to rest. We need to rest. But... I sometimes catch myself thinking about that day as sort of my day or the day that is okay, it's for God these other days and then it's sort of for me on that, that day off. So it's an area I had to kind of readjust. All right, number four. Um, if you're sitting here thinking, okay, wow, comprehensive authority, you know, this seems very far-reaching, very invasive. Uh, are you really saying that God's telling me everything about everything? And I'm saying, yeah. He is, but this authority is the best thing for you. It is a benevolent authority. And what do I mean by that? I mean, taste and see that the Lord is good. That he intends to bless you by his authority. God's authority is for our greatest good. It is the very best thing for a human being to obey God. It's what we were created for. It's what we will live forever doing if we're, if we're born again. 
And so the very best thing a human can do is to abandon their autonomy and yield to the Lord's authority in trust and obedience. Because His authority is what will bring the most profound peace, the deepest joy, the greatest stability, the richest reward. He knows us. And His commands are for our good. When a creature rebels against the Creator, when a human tries to act or even exist independently from the Maker, only death and destruction ensue. It's the worst thing a human could do. I was reading Psalm 16 the other day, and, and there's a lot of things that struck me about, about this, this theme, but here... One verse in particular sort of jumped out at me, and I've been thinking about it. There David describes the life of someone who's sort of bucking God's ways, who's, who's rebelling against God's authority, and in that case, they're worshiping idols. They've exchanged the worship of God for idols. And listen to what he says here about the people that do that. He says their sorrows increase. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David's saying, I'm distancing myself from, from their false worship. I'm not going to do that because I'm, I'm trusting the Lord. And, and he goes on to describe the blessings of that. But he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Pain compounds for the idolater. Satan wants to enslave humans and ultimately kill humans, and the Lord wants humans to flourish. And so, if another, another psalm uh, I was thinking about in, in this light, Psalm 34. In that psalm, David beckons us to experience the Lord's goodness, right? He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't have it on there. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34. And then he goes on and he lays out all the benefits of yielding to his authority. He describes those who trust the Lord, who fear Him, and who yield to His authority. He says, okay, what are they like? He says, their faces are radiant. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Verse 5. There is a radiancy, a joy, a peace, happiness, that know the Lord and trust Him. He also says they're blessed, verse 8. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in the Lord. His life is full, blessed, rich with God's presence. He says they have no lack in verses 9 and 10. Those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Because they have God. And for us as Christians, we see further, we have the, the new creation that awaits us. We lack no good thing. What else? God responds to the prayers of people who trust Him. We have an ear to the Almighty. We have His ear. His ears are toward their cry. Verse 15, He hears, He delivers, He responds to the prayers. God Almighty listens to your prayers for Michael and Maymay and will answer those prayers for those who fear Him. Psalm 34 details all these blessings. And probably the, be- the best text where my mind first went to was in, in Matthew 11 on this idea of God's benevolent authority toward us. And in this chapter, the Christ Himself is calling to a people that are weighed down under the burdens of their idolatry, of going their own way, seeking rest, but never finding rest. And He calls on them to submit to His authority. And he tells them what they'll find when they do. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Think about that. Even though Christ has all authority, And he won't be mocked, right? He has all authority. Even though he has that authority, he came to us in utter humility. 
And his heart is fundamentally humble and gentle. He wants to bless even his idolatrous people with rest. It's a kind and humble and benevolent authority. That's the nature of it. It's generous because the king wants the absolute best for his people. And he proved it, didn't he? Our king, the one who has complete authority to condemn us for rebelling against him, came for us and died in our place. We were not asking for that. That's how we know he loves us. That's how we know he will love you, the worst of you, no matter what you have done, what you've thought, the depths of your sin. And when you taste that goodness, that deliverance, you will see that his authority is for your good too. So if you're here and you're thinking like, Christ commands, like, ugh, you know, like, just seems authoritarian. I want to do what I want to do. Have you tasted his goodness? Have you lived long enough to experience the sorrows of your idolatry? Learning to distrust your own rebellious authority and to yield to his is the best thing for you to do. That's what it means to be under his authority. It's a benevolent authority. All right? Well, we're going to wrap up here. We've got time maybe for, for one question, if you got it. We've got two minutes here. Um, does anybody have questions about this? concept of Scripture's authority in our lives? No. Let's go to lunch. All right. Let's pray. Father, the great, the great paradox is that to be under your authority is to live as people who are free. You give us the lanes to run in and we don't have to waste energy wondering what we need to do or how, how to do it. We can just full-throated pursue you. And yet our sinful selves get in the way. Our hearts are still deceived, and so there's more, more for you to conquer. And so, Lord, we confess that. We confess that we often go astray um, from your authority. And yet, as the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, you continually bring us back, and, and you teach us to submit. You bring affliction and like the psalmist in 119, we say we're, we're grateful for it because before we were restrict, uh, afflicted, we went astray. And yet when, we, when you bring those into our lives, you, you bring it with your good hand to bring us back to you, to trust you more deeply, to experience your joy, um, your peace, uh, a life that's truly fruitful and meaningful. That's all that you want to bless us with your authority. And so we pray for more of that, for more obedience on our end, and, and you just fill us with hope. Uh, as we do, as we look toward you and the new creation. We ask it in Jesus' name.